0: Well, hey everyone, my name is Bert Alcorn. I'm one of the pastors here at Anthem Ventura. And whether you're watching online in a Zoom room on Facebook or in a backyard, welcome. I'm so glad you are here today. A special welcome to everyone gathering in a Zoom room or a backyard. Today's week two of Anthem House to House. Last week was incredible and so delighted and excited to see what God is going to do this week as we are growing more intentional in our community in the craziness of this season. So if you do have your Bibles, uh, open it up to the book of First Peter. We are in a study as a church through the letter of First Peter. And I said this a couple of weeks ago when we started preparing for 1 Peter back in... I don't know, the fall of 2019, we had no idea what to expect and we knew it was going to be powerful and profound, but we had no idea 2020 was going to be the dumpster fire that it is. And this book already, we're just a couple of weeks in, has served as such a profound and prophetic call to us to live well, wisely, and holy here in a home that is not our home. And so I want to start our time in First Peter today with a question. How does how does First Peter find you today? How do, you guys know that you guys know that I don't know if you guys do as many emails as I have to do in a given week, but about fifty percent of the emails that I start and I and I read say, "Hope this email finds you well." And I, I'm curious how how does First Peter find you today? Are you weary? Are you tired? Are you, are you worn out? Are you encouraged or discouraged? Are you walking in suffering and trials? Are you walking in joy and delight? How does, even take a moment, really, take a moment and, and maybe share with maybe your spouse or someone you're sitting next to or just maybe process internally, how does First Peter find you today? One of the most important things we can remember especially about New Testament letters, is they are written to people, real people in a time, in a place. There is an intended audience. Peter's not writing into the ether, he's writing to a people. We forget that sometimes because now 2,000 some odd years later, we get to reap the fruit and benefit and wisdom and glory of scripture. But we have to remember, Peter's actually writing to Christians. He was writing to encourage. He was writing for a purpose. And and these Christians were were scattered because they were being persecuted in Jerusalem. And so they fled. And they're all around the Roman Empire. And so Peter seems to be writing to this crew of Christians who are in what is modern day Turkey, but he he would describe as Asia Minor. And he's he's writing to build them up, to encourage them, to give them hope. He, he's writing. Uh, to the people that needed to know that their hope is not found in the things of this world because they're getting let down left and right by all the things of this world. They're being persecuted and ostracized, their social strain. They're going through trials of various kinds, to quote Peter, and they need to re- be reminded that their hope is not here, but it is kept secure in heaven. It's this living hope in contrast to the dead hope, of the hope in all the things that fall away here. No, 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 it's a living hope. And it's kept for you in heaven. And it is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Peter's helping discouraged Christians become resilient disciples who are faithful in the face of cultural coercion and who live a vibrant life in the Spirit. And today, what Peter is getting at here in our text is, is one that's it's an idea that's been woven throughout the entire story of God. Peter's talking about prophets and preachers and angels, and he's talking about your salvation. He's going to talk about those who have gone before to labor on your behalf so that you would meet the risen Christ and forever live differently. And so if you have your Bible, turn to 1 Peter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 12 today. That's where we're going to be, verses 10 through 12 And Peter starts off concerning this salvation. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through who through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Peter begins this encouragement and he begins this encouragement to these hard-pressed believers by encouraging them to look to the source of our salvation from Jesus as the source of our living hope. And what he's doing in our text today is he's reminding him of not only the infinite value of our salvation, but the long story and deep legacy of that salvation. And he leads off saying, concerning this salvation. What salvation is he talking about? Concerning this salvation. Well, it's actually been, I don't know if you've noticed this, but the first 12 verses have had this covert theme of salvation. Right, everything he's been talking about so far has been about salvation. In the first two verses, it's salvation's Trinitarian source, that our salvation comes from the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. And then in verses three through five, talking about salvation's future, right, a salvation that's ready to be revealed to us in full at the last time and then last week where we were, it's salvation's present adversary, that somehow this salvation is won by present trials. We see this in the life of Jesus. We see this in our life. And he brings this section to a close, reminding us of the big story of God that has been at work long before any of us, or even Peter, was born to bring us into the family of God. And he reminds us of salvation's past glories and those who have labored on your and my behalf to bring us into the family of God and it's this salvation that he's talking about this salvation that he is getting at he says concerning this salvation the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was was to be uh, yours searched and inquired carefully searched and inquired carefully. And here we are exposed to the reality that there is a deep legacy to your faith and to my faith. There's a long story of God that has gone on before. There's a deep legacy to their salvation and a deep legacy to ours. Now this is a fun little exercise here. This is a, a fun little exercise. Who shared the gospel with you? Was it a, your mom or your dad, maybe a sibling or a friend, maybe a coach or a pastor or youth pastor or something? Who shared the gospel with you? Now, now, who shared it with them? And maybe you know, maybe you don't know. So if it's your parents, who shared the gospel with your parents? If it was a, a coach or a youth pastor or, or a mentor, who shared it with them? And, and now go back one more step. Who shared it with them? We probably don't even know, right? But someone was faithful to carry the gospel to that person. So it'd be carried to the next person who carried it to you. There's a deep and long legacy to all of our salvations. Here's the realities. Your salvation didn't start with you. And it doesn't end with you. It doesn't start with you and it doesn't end with you at all. And Peter's saying it started long before you were ever born. Oftentimes we have this temptation to make our Christian faith all about just like me and God, me and God. That's it. But that's, that's not it because someone had to share the gospel with you. Yes, the Holy Spirit opened your eyes, but someone had to share it with you. It doesn't start with you. It doesn't end with you. And as Peter says, people long, long ago were rooting around and investigating and inquiring who this Christ was, what this Christ was going to be like, what this salvation was all about. And as they're rooting around, God is letting them into some of the picture. And he's starting to give them shadows and images and glimpses. And it's this picture we have of a a suffering servant, of a servant who would obtain glory but through suffering. And, and, And here's the truth about Jesus. Is when Jesus comes on the scene, he is not what anyone expected at all. Let's keep going in verse 10. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. These these prophets that were rooting around and searching, God lets them into the story a little bit. And what they see is that this Christ, the Savior, this Messiah would have to suffer. And that only through suffering would come the subsequent glories. Now, there's a lot of interesting history we are not going into today about the end of the Old Testament. And there's about this 400 year gap between the opening of the New Testament, right? So some of the last prophets we've got there and, and kind of the Israelite people returning to their land slowly but surely. And then like when John the Baptist comes on the scene. And you can go read about the Maccabees, you can go read about kind of Early Western civilization and some of the the, uh, Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, all of that stuff. Go read about all that stuff on your own time. But what is fascinating there is whatever happened in those 400 years from the time when the prophets were out and about proclaiming and and prophesying about the suffering Christ who had come to save his people, something happened in that gap where they expected Jesus or they expected the Messiah, the Christ, to be like a military leader who would finally bring victory and freedom to the nation-state of Israel. They had, they had forgotten and, and forgot all about the suffering Christ and just wanted the glorious, victorious Christ. Right For the typical first-century Jew, when Jesus comes on the scene, the suffering Christ is simply unacceptable because they wanted their military leader. They wanted the fight. They wanted the glory. They wanted to be in power. They wanted to be a nation state. They had no time for a Messiah who was given to suffering because they needed the Messiah who would bring about their freedom, their power, their victory, their domination. They were looking for a Jesus who would put them in power, not a Jesus who would call them to suffering. Does any of this ring true for today? what kind of Jesus are you serving? Because if you're using Jesus to get power, to marginalize other people, to get your way, to get your freedom, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible calls you and me to die to ourselves, to give away freedom, to give away our own selfishness, to give away comfort to elevate others, to go after the poor, to go after the marginalized, to willingly accept limitations and to carry our cross daily. Now, we often look back in these moments and go, you silly first century people, how did you miss Jesus? He was right in front of you. And before we are too quick to point the finger, how often do we miss the Jesus that is right in front of us? How often? How often do we miss him because our expectations of who God is and what he should do in our lives is so warped and different? How often does Jesus not fit into our nice, neat little boxes? Have we expected a Jesus that can only work inside a building? We got to get back to our indoor buildings, we got to get back to our indoor large gatherings because that's the place where God works. Have we expected that Jesus only works through pastors and paid professionals? I don't really need to read my Bible because I know Bert's reading his Bible and that's good enough for me. I don't really need to pray. I just kind of am part of this thing and and someone else will do the prayer. I don't really need to integrate a rule of life or disciplines into my life because someone else will do that. That's what we have the pastors for. I don't really need to carry the gospel to my neighbors. I'll just let Bert tell them about Jesus. Have we expected a Jesus that doesn't expect anything from us? Jesus says, no, 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 it's cool. It's cool, bro. Just like, you don't have to go to church. Like, whatever. Go do church by yourself in nature. You don't have to, you don't have to commit to anything. No, no, when something better comes along. You, you don't have to give any money or give any time. Let me, let me tell you the truth. That is not Jesus. That is a God of your own making. To say, I don't need the church. I'm not called to a high bar of commitment. That I'm not called to give my time and money and myself away. If that is a God you are following, that is a false God. The God we follow, the Jesus we follow in scripture says, give everything away. Highest commitment possible. Jesus went from preaching the thousands down to 12 guys because he had a commitment so high that people said, no, 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 that's not for me. I can't carry my cross daily. I can't die to myself. I can't love my enemy. I can't give away everything I have. I can't radically reorient my schedule around being with Jesus, becoming like him, and doing the things he does. That's crazy. Doesn't he know I'm busy? Doesn't he know I'm homeschooling my kids? Doesn't doesn't he know that I'm working from home and doing double the work? Doesn't, Doesn't he know that I don't have that much money? Why would he ask to give it away? Friends, the Jesus of the scriptures is one who calls us to die to ourselves and give it all away. If you believe Jesus would never ask you to commit, to never ask you to give your money, your time, yourselves to somebody or something else, you are not following the Jesus of scriptures. And we're no better than the Pharisees in the first century who missed the Jesus that was right in front of their faces. How often do we expect Jesus to make my life easy and comfortable and happy? So of course, Jesus wants me to have a nicer car. Of course, Jesus wants me to have a bigger house. Of course, Jesus wants my life to be a little bit easier and conflict-free. I don't think so, friends. Friends. I don't think so at all. But what I love about what's happening here in 1 Peter is this isn't a rebuke. Peter's not writing to those Pharisees who put Jesus on a cross. He's writing to Christians who have given themselves fully to the gospel of Jesus. This isn't a rebuke. It's a reminder. It's a reminder. Don't get distracted. Don't get, and how gracious is that for us today? Peter's saying, no, 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 don't get distracted with the things of this world. Don't get wrapped up in, in missing Jesus by accident because we get wrapped up in the cares of this world. No, no, keep your eyes on Jesus. Remember this long legacy that we have. Remember the story of God that has brought you and me into this family. Remember that. Remember that because that's going to help you from missing Jesus. Remember that. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. This is how Peter's audience came to faith, through the suffering servant. And they themselves are identifying with their Savior in their suffering. So for the discouraged believer that is reading or hearing the words of Peter, this is is massively encouraging This is massively encouraging because they were living this life filled with difficulties, filled with trials, that was mirroring the life of the Messiah, the one who saved them, in whom they had put their trust. Is that encouraging to you? Man, I hope so. I hope so. How often do we miss Jesus? And not only does this salvation have a a deep legacy in the story of God and comes through the suffering glorious servant Jesus, Peter tells us these prophets were searching and studying for this coming salvation in the Christ and, and they were doing it to serve you. Check this out in verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look, all describing the labor and effort of bringing salvation to you. Prophets, preachers, angels, all labored, all wondered about the salvation that you and I now freely enjoy. There are three really encouraging truths here in this text right here. The first is that prophets labored their entire lives to present the true gospel to us. Second is that preachers have traveled around the globe to ensure that it has gained a hearing before us. And angels would like nothing better than to gaze into what God has done for you and for me. Isn't that astounding that you were in the mind of the prophets? when they were searching out the mysteries of this coming Christ, that the whole Bible is this unfolding story of the gospel moving to and through people in such a way that angels wonder what is happening here. This is amazing love. Ancient prophets, itinerant and everyday preachers, exalted angels stood in service of the salvation that has come to us. The reality is the fullness of your salvation has been the joyful business of God's servants over the centuries. You are part of something much bigger than yourself. When you say yes to Jesus, we've said it's more important of what you're saved into than what you're saved out of, partly because of this. Because for centuries and a millennia, Prophets and preachers and angels and God's workmen and servicemen have been joyfully laboring towards this salvation that you and I freely enjoy. Therefore, Peter says, stand firm. Even when the world persecutes you, even when the culture pressures you to conform, to abandon the way of Jesus and to conform into something else, even when the The culture of consumer and cultural Christianity tries to bend you back into their image of ease and comfort. You say, no, 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 that's not the Jesus of scripture. Stand firm. You are in the fullness of God's promises as members of the new covenant. You have received a salvation and a redemption that people in the Old Testament only could imagine and wonder about. We all live on this side of the cross and the resurrection. We are empowered with this new life. So here's the question. What do we do with this new life? What will we do with that new life that only the prophets could wonder about? Here's here's another question. Will the joy of our salvation be enough to carry us through all of life's circumstances? Will the joy of your salvation be enough to carry you through all of life's circumstances? Is it enough? Or is it this intellectual, ethereal thing that really doesn't have any bearing on my life here now or is it enough to savor and sit in every single day to get me through whatever I may face? Will we look back on the promises of God and the faithfulness of God and let those fulfilled promises carry us through the day? I think 2020 is the perfect testing ground for those questions. It already has been, right? It already has been the perfect testing ground for those questions. So many things have been taken away. So many things have been altered. I would argue forever, probably changed and altered forever. But our salvation in Jesus has not. The truth of scripture has not. The person, the work, the life, the ministry of Jesus has not. And all of that purchases for us remains unchanged. Or in the language of Peter, that inheritance is kept in heaven for us, and it's undefiled, it's imperishable, and it's unfading. It's not going anywhere. Is that enough for you? Is it? Is it enough? Jesus and Jesus alone Or have you fallen into the so many tra- so the, this trap of so many throughout the last 2,000 years of Jesus and something else? Jesus and comfort. Jesus and buying a house. Jesus and well-behaved kids. Jesus and a perfect marriage. Have you fallen into the trap of Jesus and? Or is Jesus enough for you? Here's what I'm struck by in this, in this couple of verses. I'm struck by the sovereignty of God, in particular that He elected you and me to hear the good news. That somehow, in the mind of some podunk prophet back in 500 whatever BC, is thinking about you and me today, going, God, what is this salvation? Who is this Christ? What's the suffering look like? What is the glory? What does this mean? And who will get to enjoy that? That God's been thinking about you and me since then and before the beginning of time. I'm struck by the reality that you and I are not accidents. That we are not here by accident. That we've been divinely purposed to be here and experience the grace of God. And I'm struck by the reality that if you've been chosen to receive the good news, you've been chosen to deliver the good news. If you've been chosen to receive the good news, you've been chosen to deliver the good news. It's not just up to me. It's not just up to missionaries. It's not just up to people who are really into Alpha or really into whatever. It's up to you and to me to carry the gospel wherever we go because you've been entrusted with it. The gospel doesn't just go to you. It goes through you. What if the person who shared the gospel with you decided, ah, someone else will share it with them? What if What if the person who shared the gospel with them said, ah, someone else will do it. Maybe my pastor will do it. Maybe a missionary will do it. Maybe an evangelist will do it. Maybe I'll take him to a crusade or an event or a meeting. What if those people said, the gospel stops with me. It's not my job to carry the good news. But they didn't. They shared it with you. They lived it out in front of you. They proclaimed the truth of Jesus to you. The gospel doesn't just go to you. It goes through you. If you've been chosen to get the good news, you've been chosen to give the good news to others. That is each and every one of ours responsibility. Now, more than ever, what a beautiful opportunity in the dumpster fire that is 2020 to share the good news and hope of Jesus with people who are looking for good news and hope. The news out there sucks. sucks. People are looking for good news. We have it. Why aren't we giving it? If you've been chosen to get the good news, you've been chosen to give the good news. Knowing this, all of this, I hope, I pray that you have a surge of spiritual fortitude to help you become resilient, resilient disciples, apprentices of Jesus, who are faithful wherever God has placed you in the face of extreme cultural coercion to live a vibrant life in the Spirit. And I hope, if nothing else today, like I believe Peter's intent was with these couple of verses here, I hope that you are bolstered in your faith that you are bolstered in your salvation, that you are encouraged by God's redemptive plan to save you and me and all humanity. And I hope that as we look ahead in the rest of 1 Peter, that our minds are made ready for action, that we would not be content with experiencing the good news, but we'd be motivated to share the good news. I don't have it on the screen here, but the next verse in First Peter goes like this. Therefore, now if you're an English or biblical nerd or whatever, whenever we come across a therefore, what's the question you ask? Go ahead right now. Yeah, what's the therefore, therefore, right? So therefore, in light of all this, in light of this astounding opener on our salvation and where it comes from and what it has battled and what it means for us and the deep legacy of that salvation, therefore, because we have a living hope that cannot be taken away, that our inheritance is unfading, imperishable, undefiled, because of all that, prepare your minds for action. Don't just sit on your butt, get to it. Prepare your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. Therefore, get to work, be clear minded about this world and what God's calling you to do and set your hope fully on the grace of Jesus because everything else will let you down. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm overwhelmed by your work and sacrifice to bring us into your family. And I'm overwhelmed how impossible this life is to live without the sanctifying work of your Holy Spirit in our lives. So we pray that your Holy Spirit would sanctify us, encourage us, empower us, help us to become more like you every single day. And as we sit and enjoy and are thankful for our salvation in you, that salvation that prophets only wondered about, that preachers label labored to give us, and that angels sit in astonishment of that we would not squander it and waste it, but we would fully enjoy it, worship you for it, and carry that same good news to others. Fill us with your spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.